Chapter 20 CSE Project When I left the suffocating environment of the CTU and started my new job in London, I felt lighter and happier than I'd done for a long time. My experience dealing with child sexual exploitation in Stetchford became incredibly important in my new role. In the three years that I'd been in the CTU, several things had happened nationally. Firstly, Andrew Norfolk of the Times had continued to unearth shocking stories of sexual abuse that had been going on for many years in Rotherham and other northern towns. Secondly, there had been further high-profile investigations across the UK that had identified a very similar pattern of offending to what we'd seen in Birmingham. There was a growing clamour by the government and the media to put a stop to this disgusting crime that was becoming an international embarrassment to Britain, as well as a personal and professional embarrassment to the people who should have been doing a lot more to stop it. I hit it off with my new boss, Peter Davis, straight away. As the leader of SEOP, he was hugely experienced in all things relating to child exploitation. He'd been charged with delivering a national action plan for UK policing to tackle CSE more effectively with a range of partners including Bernardo's, the Children's Society, the NSPCC, the National Working Group for Sexually Exploited Children, the Department of Education, the NHS and others. I was working directly with Peter, but I also reported to the College of Policing, who were paying my wages. I'd never worked with the College before, so this is all new to me, and I had to try and get my head around this rather Byzantine organisation that seemed to embody some of the most confusing and dysfunctional aspects of both policing and academia. I had a lovely College of Policing manager, Joe, who helped me navigate her organisation and equipped me with everything I needed to do my job. The challenge was a daunting one. I had to work with all 45 police forces in the UK to embed the National Action Plan to significantly improve the policing response to CSE and I had 12 months to do it. No pressure. It was not going to be easy because even though CSE was now regularly in the headlines, there were still significant barriers to overcome. The single biggest barrier was the inconvenient reality that police funding had fallen off a cliff in 2010 when David Cameron became Prime Minister. When elected, Cameron had the police service well and truly in his crosshairs and he and his new Home Secretary, Theresa May, set about a brutal schedule of highly unpopular reforms and cost-cutting that decimated police numbers and eventually more or less dismantled neighbourhood policing in the UK. Cameron had been a special advisor in the Tory government way back in 1993 when Home Secretary Ken Clark had tried to impose unpopular reforms on police pay and terms and conditions of employment via Sir Patrick Sheehy. These were rejected outright by policing, causing frustration in Tory ranks. So it was not necessarily a surprise that he had them in his sights when he became Prime Minister. As a result of budget cuts, Every chief constable was running around desperately trying to find costs to cut, 
and ways to balance their books. The wider police workforce nationally was also in something of a government-induced state of meltdown following the Windsor Review of Police Pay and Conditions. The Tories clearly didn't agree with the idea that people should spend their entire working life in the organisation. Suddenly, Theresa May and Tom Windsor had pulled the career rug from under the feet of police officers nationally, who now find that they would be working for longer and for less money than they'd signed up for. This led to a growing exodus of some of the best talent and most experienced officers from the police to the private sector in the years following the review, and morale hit rock bottom for those who stayed. It was a further kick in the teeth for police officers when Tom Windsor was appointed Chief Inspector of Constabulary, which was rather like making Miss Trunchbull from Matilda head of Ofsted. Windsor not only became a hated figure in policing, but also a figure of some ridicule when he turned up at the 2013 National Police Memorial Day ceremony in a uniform that looked like he'd been let loose in a dressing up box. Windsor has never been a police officer or a member of the armed forces, which made his ludicrous choice of uniform even more bizarre. The service was therefore trying to find ways of reducing demand on its ever-diminishing resources. So people were probably not going to be too happy about someone like me rocking up and asking them to take on a load more work with CSE. The other barrier was the fact that CSE is largely a hidden crime and there was a perception amongst many senior officers in certain parts of the country that it was a northern problem that they didn't need to worry about. Whilst it's true that CSE definitely manifested itself in some places more than others, the sexual exploitation of young vulnerable girls and boys by older men took on many different forms and no force in the UK was immune. I decided that the best way forward was to create a tool for all forces to assess themselves against the elements of the action plan. I would then travel to every force and spend some time with them, talk to key people and see if I could help in any way. So this is what I did. And within weeks I'd set off on what turned into a road trip that lasted many months, travelling backwards and forwards across the whole of the UK. It was tiring but enjoyable and I would frequently visit five or six different forces in a three-day period. Part of my job was also to identify those forces that were doing an excellent job and ensuring that I captured all that knowledge and experience so that we could share it with forces that were struggling. As I travelled the country, it became clear that every force was really starting to feel the squeeze from government cuts. This was also at a time when more and more was being expected of each force, particularly on what came to be known as the vulnerability agenda. This was basically a new and growing focus on the importance of all the issues that public protection units had traditionally dealt with. Domestic abuse, child abuse, mental health, CSE and now modern slavery had previously been seen as the narrow preserve of these units. But there was now an expectation from the government, Home Office and the Police Inspectorate 
that these issues should be the responsibility of all police officers. Whilst this is a very noble aspiration, the government were simultaneously taking a chainsaw to police budgets at this time. In addition, they were conspicuously not saying, oh, by the way, because we now want you to focus more on all these vulnerability issues, here is a list of all the things that you no longer need to do. The expectations around all other policing activities didn't change, which put every force under growing and unreasonable levels of stress. The thing I enjoyed most about my crazy road trip was seeing the incredible diversity of policing across the UK, from the big city forces like the Met, Greater Manchester and Merseyside, with many thousands of officers, to the little shire forces with barely more than a thousand. I loved hearing all the different accents and meeting some real characters. I was made to feel very welcome everywhere I went. In the police, we might all speak differently and wear slightly different uniforms and cap badges, but there's definitely one big overarching policing family. Another thing that united everyone was a deep dislike of the policies of Theresa May. It was around this time that May delivered her much derided speech to the Police Federation annual conference, during which she poured scorn on the warnings that the body had given her about the severity of the cuts to police budgets. She said, Today, you've said that neighbourhood police officers are an endangered species. I have to tell you that this kind of scaremongering does nobody any good. It doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve the officers you represent, and it doesn't serve the public. This crying wolf has to stop. You can choose to work with me, or you can choose to shout from the sidelines. What I offer is a positive vision for policing, one in which it is an exciting time to be a police officer, where you have the freedom to get on with your job, where you are rewarded for your skills and hard work, and where policing is fit for the future. What I have set out today will help transform policing for the better. If you want British policing to be the best it can be, join with me to make that happen. How right they were, how wrong she was. Shortly before this, I'd received my Police Long Service and Good Conduct Medal which was given at 22 years service. This is quite an emotional milestone for me because when I first joined in 1989, someone with 22 years service seemed to me to be so old I was often in awe of how experienced they were. I realised that I'd come a long way from being that green, fresh-faced 23-year-old looking at myself in the mirror in Hendon all those years ago in my first uniform. I was given the choice of getting my medal in London by the Met or in the West Midlands. I decided that it would be nice to go back to London and join my classmates, or at least those who hadn't died, been sacked or been sent to prison. I was pleased to find that none of them fell into any of these categories, and it was fantastic to see so many people that I hadn't seen in such a long time. Some had aged better than others, but everyone had so many funny stories to tell. Some had gone on to very senior ranks in the police, 
moving from force to force and promotion, and others had stayed as uniformed constables at the same police station their entire career. It was around this time that my home force, West Midlands, announced a selection process for promotion to Chief Inspector, and I decided to apply. After jumping through lots of hoops, sitting an assessment centre and then an interview, I was told that I'd been successful. This was a big relief because I'd gone for it twice before and been unsuccessful, and I'd promised myself that if I were again unsuccessful, I would give up any aspirations for further promotion. It's worth expanding on the promotion system a bit more, because I think that this is another factor that has contributed to the demise of British policing. Over 30 years, I was blessed beyond words to work for some really amazing and inspirational police managers. I also worked for some truly dreadful people with no emotional intelligence or humanity who had been promoted way above their competence by cynically playing the game. There are so many brilliant, capable managers and leaders in the police service who are also brilliant police officers. But the promotion system prevented them from being appointed to the most senior roles. This is because the selection criteria, usually dreamt up by the College of Policing, doesn't value or acknowledge operational experience, which gives an advantage to the corporate types and the bullshitters. This is most frequently seen at the promotion process for Chief Inspector. Many brilliant officers get stuck at the rank of Inspector. There's general agreement in policing that promotion processes are chaotic, inconsistent, fickle and generally have almost nothing to do with whether anyone is any good at doing the job. They are also completely different according to where you are in the UK. The process takes minimal account of what a candidate has done in their career and favours those who are good at self-promotion and parroting buzzwords. The evidence, in inverted commas, of suitability that many candidates put forward is at best greatly embellished and at worst completely fabricated. But no one ever gets challenged or called out for fibbing. I've seen so many different versions of the promotion process at four different ranks and the one common denominator was that they were all hopeless. It seemed as if the organisation couldn't manage to devise a process that had the confidence of the people who put themselves forward for promotion. It also spawned some truly terrible leaders who turned passing promotion processes into an art form by dedicating themselves almost exclusively to understanding the rules of the game. They would then network enthusiastically and shamelessly suck up to anyone who they thought might be able to give them an advantage. Certain individuals going for promotion would disappear for months beforehand to refine their application form and seek out mentoring opportunities from senior officers who were also experts at playing the game. Lots of outstanding people with many years of operational experience who would have been fantastic leaders just gave up in complete frustration. They were too busy doing the job well by running teams and protecting the public to waste their time learning the ridiculous jargon 
that would light up the eyes of the new breed of senior officers and HR managers. The process that I find most baffling was the Chief Inspector's selection, which as mentioned above I went through three times before I was eventually successful. These processes bore no relation whatsoever to real-world policing. A candidate's operational competence or how they were perceived by their peers or staff. It really was simply a cynical exercise in learning the weird, ultra-politically correct rules of the game. The most bizarre part of the process was the lengthy application form, which was based on a range of competencies drawn from the College of Policing Competency and Values Framework. Candidates would have to frame their evidence for promotion in terms of each of these competencies and every single word written on the application would be scrutinised and scored by a team of assessors who had clearly had their brains removed and rinsed under a cold tap before they were allowed to participate in this dehumanising pantomime of a process. Candidates literally spent weeks upon weeks crafting and polishing these application forms and anyone who naively thought that they could get through the process by being themselves or by relying on their widely acknowledged professionalism and experience was doomed to instant failure. So, how do I think policing promotion processes should be done? I think there's a fairly simple solution which probably means that there is zero chance that it would ever actually be adopted in policing. Firstly, there needs to be some element of staff, peer and manager feedback about a candidate. And not just from a current manager, because as I find out throughout my career, that person might hate you, and you probably hate them. The feedback needs to come from a range of different managers who know and have worked with you. Equally, if the applicant is already a manager, their own staff and peers will have a view of whether they're any good or not. The reality is that everyone on a team knows who the good people are and who would be good in the next rank. They also know who the bullshitters are, or the people who would make them want to instantly throw themselves under a bus if they find out that they were going to be their next manager. If the applicant gets a thumbs up here, then they proceed to the next stage. For certain ranks, e.g. sergeant and inspector, there is a requirement to learn a great deal of legislation. There are no shortcuts in this regard. You either know it or you don't. If you don't know the legislation, you're a liability to yourself, your staff, to the public and the organisation. Therefore, applicants should sit a knowledge-based exam that tests their understanding of the necessary legislation. This is what currently happens. However, the questions are frequently ambiguous and designed to trip people up, which means that you can know the legislation inside out and still get the question wrong. So, exam people, don't be dicks. Design the questions to be crystal clear. And if you must use multiple choice answers, make the answers sufficiently different to give candidates a sporting chance. The final stage in the process should replicate how the actual job works in the real world and assess the applicant's abilities in that situation. 
However, it needs to be as close to the actual job in the actual world, not some horrible dystopian imaginary world in which you get nothing right. So give applicants a load of documents to read and absorb quickly and then ask them to decide how and why they're going to prioritize their tasks. Using meaningless corporate buzzwords should lead to an instant fail because that nonsense is of no utility or relevance whatsoever at a firearms incident or after an industrial accident where some poor bloke has had his arm ripped off by a piece of machinery. I would completely skip the entire interview stage because this is the ficklest part of the promotion process in policing. It encourages nepotism and suck-upism. Interviews also allow senior officers to completely ignore everything that has happened in the process up to that point and fail someone because they don't like their accent, haircut, shoes or breath or because that particular member of the panel is just having a bad day. Back on the project, things had been going really well. Everything that I'd set out to do had been accomplished and I felt reasonably confident that the policing community nationally would now be in a better place to tackle CSE. After my year on the project, I was given a Chief Constable's commendation by Simon Bailey, the National Lead for Child Abuse Investigation and Protection. I asked to stay on and do another 12 months in the role, but my force told me that they wanted me back. So, with a heavy heart and lots of happy memories, I returned to Birmingham to take up my first Chief Inspector job.